Hi everyone, this is Jennifer Judkins and you're listening to The Ripple. This is part two of Allison Silver Adams' story. If you have not listened to the first half of Allison's story, I would suggest going back to the previous episode so this will make more sense to you. Here's Allison. And we got into the car and we left. And then, as if you were here, you would remember that everyone was stranded. I mean, everything shut down. So there were people walking everywhere. And we were in the car and we realized that there were all these people stranded trying to get on buses. So we started driving people to places to get home. We saw a pregnant woman. We rolled down the window. Let us give you a ride. Please tell us you're not in labor. We can't handle much more today. And we took all these people all over. We picked up this one woman who was older than us and she's probably my age now, you know. She said, uh, do you have any money? And I laughed and I said, no, actually, I don't have a dollar on me. We were out of the country yesterday and I was supposed to go to the bank in the World Trade Center this morning. I don't have any money on me. She said, well, all the ATMs are shut down, I'm hearing. And she said, how are you gonna get across the bridge? Pretty easy past days. How are you gonna get across the bridge? And I said, I, I don't know. And she said, here, here's $20. I'm a mother, just take my money. You can't be, you can't have no money on you. At first I said, no, no. And then I thought it through. I was like, I should probably take the $20. So I took her address down and I said, I will find you and I will mail it to you, which I did two months later when things took a while to settle down. And then we realized we couldn't get off the island, which really, sent my husband into a much darker place. Um, He really wanted to get off the island badly. I um, had a cousin living in the 90s on the east side. So I said, we should show up there. And we drove over and when we showed up, she started crying and just said, I I can't believe you're alive. I just, I, I, can't, I couldn't imagine a, world, a scenario where you guys would be alive kind of thing. And then I said, um, these are my only clothes. I, I need to dry clean them. Can I borrow something? So I put something else on and I walked to a dry cleaner and I rem- I'll remember handing my clothes off to this dry cleaner and saying, how long will it take? And she was like, oh, you know, you could have by Thursday. And I got tears in my eyes and I said, um, this is all I have the fastest you could do this, I would really appreciate it. And she was like, oh, okay, no problem. I'll, I'll get it for you tomorrow morning. I said, fine. And that, I mean, that was that day. We were completely in shock. When did you <clears throat> fully realize what had happened that day? Like news-wise, news well, really? I mean, that took, that took days days so what what happened we we took refuge at my cousins and I remember we had the television on the whole time we went into this little room the two of us and we had the TV on the whole time but I could say that I remember seeing Tom Brokaw's face I I don't remember anything at all none of it was absorbed and we were up all night and I remember it hit about four in the morning and I kept thinking to myself, wow, I killed this cat. 
you know, and, and in light of, you know, the tragedy before us, I could recognize, I mean, I, my cat was a member of our family, but I could certainly recognize that that was insignificant to, to what many others were going through. Um, but I, I said to the thought of my family, my pet, you know, I, he was been with us since he, we actually rescued him when he was only a couple weeks old and fed him with a bottle feeder, you know, a dropper and all of that. I said, you know, the thought of him starving to death, like what if he's starving in the apartment or he's wandering the streets or, you know, I just need to know. I need to, to see if there's a way to help him. So at four in the morning, I said, we gotta go. We gotta go back down there. Everything was blocked from, uh, from the east side to the west side below 14th Street. It was a frozen zone. We were all the way at 96, so we took a subway to 14th and then got out. And then we, there were police on every single corner from the east to the west side from 14th to the southern tip of Manhattan. And so we would walk to a corner and we would say, hey, we have to rescue uh, a cat. Cats can live a long time. It was really funny. We realized, we, we joke about this, that we learned very quickly. People don't like cats. No one cares about cats. So when we would get a no answer from one corner, you could literally walk to the next corner. It was all about heading south. So we'd walk to the next corner and we'd say, we have a pet. And the person would go, okay, all right, move to the next. So you'd get a block south. And then you'd say, you'd try again with, I have a cat and the person would deny you. So you'd have to move east or west or to the next corner. And so we started lying and saying we had a dog. And then it was like the floodgates opened. Oh my gosh, please go rescue your dog. You know, I, it was really weird to see the difference between uh, the sentiment for cats and dogs. So we, we traversed and I mean, this took hours because it wasn't a straight path. It was, you know, we'll go two blocks east this way and see if we get a nice person and we'll go two blocks that way and see if we, so eventually, we got downtown and what was really weird was when you got below Canal Street, everybody assumed you were supposed to be there. So people stopped talking to us or asking us. And also very weird, God bless America, when we got to Canal Street, there were already t-shirts with images of the Twin Towers being sold. So we crossed over Canal Street. I don't know how to describe this to you. I'm gonna do my best. It was like snow was falling from the sky. There was the debris, the, the ash, the, um, and papers. I mean, I'm not exaggerating that when you got close to our apartment, it was probably two feet of muck. And in, by muck, I mean papers, like, like as if you had hundred millions, billions of pieces of paper that had been shredded and then got wet. That was what the ground was like. Um, you couldn't see the pavement. Um, you were stepping in this muck. It was everywhere. It was, the papers were, I mean, office documents were in the fire escapes and the smell of the fire, that metal chemical, which every once in a while I will smell and it, will bring me right back. It may have been a sunny day on the 12th. 
I don't remember. I remember the cloud of what was falling from the sky. It felt like darkness to me. There were these young children on bicycles wearing masks, like scavengers, like looking for things in the debris, which I couldn't believe. And what time is this on the 12th? Very early in the morning. So it probably took us four hours to get to our apartment. So I mean, I would say eight, nine in the morning. Um, actually, a building fell after we left the area. So one of the buildings, adjacent buildings. So if we were to look at when that was, I was there before then. Right by my apartment, you saw a number of people that looked like doctors um, looking for body parts. And um, not to rescue people, they were closely eyeing the ground. And then we approached our building which was unrecognizable. It looked like it had been on fire. There was water damage. A fire alarm was going off. The power was obviously out. And we had an enclosed fire escape in our building. And when I went in, I, I literally couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And I said to my husband, this is really stupid. I, um, I can't see anything. This is so dangerous, climbing up this fire escape in the dark and no one knows we're here. So if something happens to us in this environment, it could be a month before someone finds us. So I said, we, we cannot do this without a flashlight. So we walked out and we saw this man who looked like a detective walking around, looked like he was looking for evidence. Um, again, closely eyeing the ground, everyone was closely eyeing the ground. And I said, excuse me, do you have a flashlight? And he looked at us in shock and he said, I didn't see you, I didn't hear you, because if I did, I'd have to arrest you. And he kept moving. A moment later, I saw a very, for a firefighter, what I would consider to be a very old looking firefighter, uh, gray hair, big gray beard. And I said, uh, excuse me. I said, I don't wanna bother you. I said, but do you think I could borrow a flashlight for just five minutes, 10 minutes tops? And he looked at me in shock again, like, what the hell are you doing here in my little white hoodie? And, uh, and I said, and he said, what are you doing? And I, again, knew I shouldn't say a cat. So I said, uh, I need to rescue a pet. And I said, listen, I know you guys have much bigger fish to fry today and I don't want to get in your way. So if you could just give it to me for like 10 minutes, I will bring it right back. He looked up and he said, people lived in this building? And I said, yeah. And he goes, huh. He goes, well, it's not safe. I can't let you go into this building. And I said, with all due respect, sir, I said, I'm going to be going into that building with or without a flashlight, and it would certainly be much safer to have one. And he said, no, no, you just can't go alone. He said, I'm going to go. And he grabbed a couple guys. And I said, no, please, please. I said, I don't want this. I said, you have people to save. There are people to rescue. And this is just my pet. And I just, I don't, I don't want to get in your way. And he looked at me. Sorry, I'm trying not to cry. He looked at me with a saddest face. And he said, um, there's nobody here. There's nobody to save. And he said, let, let us do this, please. I said, okay, 
and we uh, walked up the stairs together and they came into our apartment. They apologized because they had the muck all over their boots and I laughed and I said, uh, don't worry about making a mess. I, I, uh, I don't think I'm going to be coming home again. And they sat down and I realized how devastated and how wary they were. And it was only the next morning and they sat down. They must have been on the pile all night long. And they sat down and they relaxed for a second. And they said, uh, so this was again, probably eight in the morning. I said, do you have any cold beer? And I laughed and I said, well, my power's been out, so nothing's cold. Let me open my fridge. And I opened my refrigerator and it was so, such an embarrassment. I, I had like vitamin water, something stupid like that. And I said, uh, no, I have these trendy, stupid waters, <laughs> uh, no beer. And they laughed and they were like, no, no thanks. And then one man said, do you mind if we use your bathroom? And I again laughed and said, do what you guys, like if you want to take a nap, you like whatever you need, you just do. And I forgot to mention, because I was in the story now focusing on them, but um, when we entered the apartment, we found the cat. He was, as you could imagine, being next to two buildings falling, completely traumatized and flipped out. We put him in a duffel bag. He, when we were coming down the fire escape, the little jerk escaped the duffel bag and flying up in the air, like he jumped out of the duffel bag on the fire escape and one of the guys caught him. And we were like stuffing him back in the duffel bag. And, uh, oh, I remember one of the firefighters said to us, like, I don't think you're gonna be coming back here for quite a while, so why don't you take something from your house? And we knew we had a long way to walk. So um, I grabbed our wedding album um, I had taken my wedding ring off when I had taken a shower that day, so I grabbed my wedding ring. So, you know, it is one of those things when people say, like, I always wonder what I would grab if there was a fire and I had a second to grab something. I can tell you that when you lose your home and you still have your life, you really don't care about stuff. You know, it's like, all right, pictures, I got those, check, we're out. So we left and we started to head north said hug these guys who were amazing and in so much pain and they were so happy to save something that day and to make somebody happy and I was so happy to spend that short amount of time with them and give them a little bit of rest and so we started to head north and the most surreal thing happened again as an American I mean I know people in other countries have had horrible things happen we um, were over by, I guess, I'm so bad with bridges, I guess that's the Brooklyn Bridge. We were over by JNR Music World, and we were walking carrying this 20-pound cat who was jumping around in the duffel bag and screaming at us. And all of a sudden we looked up and we saw the first tank roll off the Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan. And it felt like that movie, uh, like Enemy of the State or something. That I remember thinking, this just can't be real and tanks started rolling off into our neighborhood. And um, yeah, it was crazy. And so we headed north and that was sort of the, the end of that experience. But what my husband kept saying, I remember when we were rescuing the cat, I kept saying, they're gone, the towers are gone, they're gone. 
And my husband kept saying, no, no, you just can't see them. There's just a lot of smoke and you just, they're, they're there. You just can't see them. And I'm like, no, honey, they're gone. It took, like you said, when, when did it all kind of sink in? I mean, that took a long time. I'd like, I mean, my husband was staring at the empty space. I, oh my goodness, there was a huge, I mean, again, I worked in the film business for 20 years, which is why everything in my brain is equated with movies. But there was this, when we rescued the cat, I couldn't believe there was the most enormous piece of the World Trade Center head was sticking out of the center of the Deutsche Bank building. And I've never seen pictures of it anywhere, so I don't know if that's been documented, but it was like the whole front of the World Trade Center had pierced through the center of the Deutsche Bank building and was sticking out into to thin air. And it kept, it looked like a, like a Godzilla movie. I mean, it just, again, the most ridiculous, unbelievable thing that you could never even imagine could happen. The magnitude of everything. I mean, we were, we were zombies for a long time afterwards. We couldn't really process much. We couldn't, everyone was in so much pain. So many people that we knew had lost people that they loved. And we felt, and for my husband probably still feels that nothing happened to us. Like, we're okay, nothing, we're, we're alive, we're both alive, which is amazing. And we're not really survivors of anything because, you know, we're the lucky ones. And it's, it, it was only honestly about four years ago that I started to come to terms with like, oh wow, this actually happened to me. Like, I'm a part of this. this we lost our home that day, you know, obviously. It was considered part of the crime scene, apparently, because uh, there were bodies found on the roof, I was told, from the plane crash. It, it's taken me a, a very long time to get to the point to, to acknowledge, because you, you feel like your pain is so insignificant, which it is, to, to the pain that others are feeling who lost their fathers, their brothers, their wives, their sisters, their, you know, their loved ones. So it's, it's taken me a really long time to come to terms with that this is something that happened to us and that we were a part of it, if that makes sense. I will say that somebody invited us to see you 2 at Madison Square Garden, which I, it really is astounding that they played that concert. It was very brave of them. And it was brave of people to show up. And it was a time period where no one wanted to do anything. Somebody invited us, and I honestly don't even remember who it was. It was a friend of my husband's. I didn't want to go. I was terrified. I don't want to be in a public place. I, you know, we're going to blow up. Someone's going to do something to us. I, I, you know, I, I didn't want to be outside. I had a, for a while, it was very hard for me to be outside. I just wanted to be hunkered down in like a safe place. But I went and they started, you know, normally a concert starts with the lights out and then you hear the music and then there's some dramatic lighting and then suddenly the band's playing and the lights come up. That's usually how a concert, the ones I go to start. This one was so unusual. I remember they suddenly turned all the lights in the garden on, all of them. 
and you could see the thousands of people and the faces of thousands of people and I started uncontrollably crying. My husband said, why are you crying? And I said, oh my God, all these people are alive. And um, I said, we're alive. All these people are alive. Because I, it was that moment that I woke up because I realized I was walking in this haze of thinking I was dead. I, I can't describe it to someone. I mean, I guess it's, that, I don't know what that is, but I really felt without putting words to it that I was dead. And I was just kind of this, like on this parallel universe of everybody else. And when I saw all these faces and I, and I felt everybody was dead, I, I felt, you know, that it's a very strange thing to describe, but I'm in a room with people who are alive that was the moment I woke up. Let's talk about how you're feeling, like physically and mentally since September 11th. And do you do um, the medical testing? I signed up right away with the World Trade Center Health Program. I felt it was important um, that things be documented and that things be tracked, not just for me, um, for others, and also as part of a historical kind of reference because it was such an unprecedented event. You know, the EPA, of course, told everyone it was safe to go back down there, which we know it wasn't, and how could they know that? Because nothing like that had ever happened before. Yeah, yeah it was not safe. And yeah, in a lot of ways we were lucky because we were completely shut down and frozen out. We had no choice. We could not go home again. Um, but there were many people who were told, oh, it's safe to go back. And then they can't afford to go anywhere else. And they, you know, had to live there with their children or pregnant women. And so I did sign up. My husband did not. My asthma is a million times worse than it ever was. Um, I'm on a lot of medication for it. I have major flare-ups. My husband and I both, oddly, um, a few years after 9-11, developed acid reflux, which never had before in my life. And I've seen on the World Trade Center reports, because I read them, that that is one of the most prominent um, after effects for, for the survivor, so it's kind of bizarre. I, on some level, you know, not to be morbid, but I have a very extensive cancer history in my family. And with what I was exposed to that day, and I'm, I live my life very well aware that there will probably be some sort of after effect for me as a result of the dust exposure. But, you know, I'm very thankful Again, it's, we're just very lucky that we've, you know, we're here and we've had time. I've been able to have children and any time that we've had has been a blessing. Um, it really is amazing that we were both there that day and that we are both alive. Um, but yes, I am a member. I have not been treated by any of the doctors. As far as PTSD and things like that emotionally, I function very well. I have triggers, you know, I have moments. How have you 
been feeling about all of the terrorism going on in Paris and London because it feels relentless. To it me. is relentless. <laughs> it is. Those are triggers. Those are triggers. I mean, they make me. How do you, how do you put it into words? You know, it's funny, I remember someone, and people are gonna hate me for saying this, but I remember someone saying to me after 9-11, and this is a true story, I carried a gas mask on my person for two years after 9-11. My husband and I, it's, he'll kill me for telling this, but we used to do drills. Like, if you're on the subway and you notice people start passing out, this is how you get it on really fast. Um, you know, we'd have these kinds of conversations. And I remember carrying my gas mask around, which looked like a very cool purse. I remember thinking that someone who's highly trained is going to see it and think that I'm the terrorist walking around with a gas mask. Someone said to me, you know, if you live your life in fear, they've won. And I remember getting really angry. And a friend of mine and I just had this conversation last week because she was there that day and she feels the same way. I remember getting really angry and saying, they've already won. They killed 3,000 people in my backyard. They've already won. That's it. I mean, what, like, when people would say that, like, oh, get back to work, get back to normal. What's normal? What's normal when people who were on their way to work suddenly disappear and vanish from the earth? Vanish. I mean, most of them, their bodies weren't even found. They completely vanish off the face of the earth. There's no normal after that. A lot of people get angry when tourists visit the site or visit you know that it's commercialized and this and that and I say people need to know they need to understand what happened that day because life as we know it will never be the same and it will never be the same it isn't the same look at what's happening like you said all around the world it was just the beginning of a spiral and I don't mean to sound negative and doomsday and but but that is our reality and so how do you live every day within the confines of this new reality I find joy in my children, I find joy in my husband, I find joy in my dog. My cat did eventually die. My dog, I just recently certified him as a therapy dog so I can go and help other people who are going through tough times. Yeah, you just go on and you go day to day and you try not to think about it too much. But I have days, I mean, I have days of anniversaries, I have days of certain religious holidays which are higher risk than others where I'll say to my children, oh, we're not riding the subway today, we're gonna take a cab. I calculate what I can. I, if sometimes I feel things, I'll wake up mornings and I'll have a bad vibe where I'm like, something's gonna happen today. And I feel it and I go about my day differently. You know, we won't go to the subway or, I, I have a problem with concerts. I um, have since 9-11, it's very hard for me to be in a public place with a lot of people. I won't do parades. I won't. I remember afterwards, my husband, when we had kids, and he'd say, oh, I want to take the kids to the Macy's Day Parade. And I said, you can take them. It won't be fun with me there. Um, I can assure you that. I mean, the, the bomb that was just in Chelsea that went off was two blocks from my kid's school. My eight-year-old still talks all the time about he has trauma about the broken glass because his best friend lived directly above where it happened in the apartment building. You know, our children are going to grow up in this world, whereas I had 
you know, the, the peaceful sort of Americana childhood growing up in Illinois. We had things we were afraid of, but they weren't going to an Ariana Grande concert and, you know, having children annihilated. I mean, it, you know, it's as Americans, because I know that other countries have contended with this, not, I'm not comparing 9-11 to anything, but this other type of terrorism, like the bomb in Chelsea, there are many countries who've had to contend with that kind of threat for years. So it is for Americans, it's a very new feeling. We just keep going forward and, you know, we live our lives every day, but it does certainly affects me and, and you know, I find it hard to live in New York City. I, I don't like, to, we went to see a show last night with the kids in Times Square. Really didn't want to be in Times Square. Really hard for me. But I go, and that's the point, is I do these things. I do them, not all of them, like parades and big concerts, but I do them, but they're really hard. 9-11 didn't change the fundamental person that I am or the way I live my life. I can say it changed the way I live my life in terms of what we just described. But I always was someone who appreciated every day and appreciated my loved ones and knew that each day is a gift and not a guarantee, um, which I think a lot of people don't feel that way, but that was my life experience prior to 9-11 that allowed me to view the world that day that way and that every day is a gift and that you have to seize the moment and you have to go for it and you know nothing's a guarantee but if there's one change in that sort of realm for me it would be that you know just the the letting the people that you love communicating it to them every single day that is very important to me Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for listening. Allison's story is one I will remember forever, and I am grateful she chose to share it with us. If you or someone you know has a story they'd like to share, please email us through our website, therippledpodcast.com. As always, I'd like to thank my editor and sound guru, Daniel Broadhurst. We'll see you next time.